Welcome to Profit's Healthcare Transformers podcast, where we'll be talking to leaders in healthcare who are focused on transforming their organizations to drive the next level of growth for their business and for healthcare. Hosted by Priya Anasia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgi. Transformation is one of those terms that has a lot of layers to it. Sometimes it's about innovation. Sometimes it's about shifting the way you do business. Sometimes it's to your overall operating model. And other times it's to a specific department or function. It's also about people, helping them navigate the discomfort that comes with change, but also motivating them to engage in the journey of transformation from the CEO to the newest employee. It's a journey, and that's why we created this podcast, to break down this multidimensional, dynamic topic of transformation, one story at a time. Are you ready to dive in? Hi, I'm Paul Shrimp, your host for this episode, and today I'm joined by AJ Loyacano. AJ, welcome. Thanks for having me, Paul. Awesome. Well, we want to get into all things that Capital RX is doing. And I think it's impossible to talk about Capital RX without really talking about this world of PBMs, which is this giant Goliath that I'm always amazed that people don't know that much about. But I would love to start off with just the the five-minute AJ. And if you can, what might be something that is not in your LinkedIn profile? Uh, sure. My background is I've spent 22 years in the pharmaceutical supply chain, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying when a drug is manufactured to how it ends up in the hands of a patient. And I had some life lessons. You know, I think what makes me unique is I've always been in software development. I spent half my career in pharmaceutical manufacturing on the plant side with software development, the other half on what we call payer patient side of the equation. So that's the opposite end, the last hop in the supply chain. And it was kind of through this bridge of experiences that you get the visibility to understand what's inefficient, what's incorrect, or even unethical in our current pricing and fulfillment model in the United States. And I guess some things that you know people don't know about me, or maybe some do, is that you know, I, I didn't wake up one morning and say, I want to be a PBM exec. <laughs> yep. I mean, that's not how it works. I will say that so I do mention there may have been some divine intervention or fate. My father was a pharmacist, so he's part of the supply chain further down. My grandfather was also a pharmacist. I am not a pharmacist, but I process claims for a living in the pharmacy space, or I spent my <laughs> adult life studying the pharmacy supply chain. I think these are some of the things that, you know, help shape my view. My mom was a public school teacher and, Mm -hmm. you know, she taught me about the fulfillment of giving back. She's also was a union member for 25 years. So I have a deep respect for organized labor. And I think all of these things play a role in who you are and shaping you. And it kind of builds to this path. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that your mother was a school teacher because I think I see a lot of that coming through in your communication of taking something that's a rather quite literally overly complex space. It is overly complex for logical reasons, but on the surface, it's we don't understand it. But for your ability to kind of distill that and structure that and have a very digestible conversation really comes through. And I will say as a guy who likes a good hat, you've got a great hat game. People don't know the hat you're wearing, but you always got a really solid hat choice in all your conversations. So a little kudos to you on that piece. Thank you. 
Yeah. Let's talk capital RX. Let's just start when somebody says, you know what, I'm going to stop and go do something. Any startup is nuts, but a startup that's going on to tackle quite literally some of the biggest businesses in healthcare. And I think that's something I'm going to pause to make sure our listeners understand is that when you look at the largest healthcare companies in the U.S., we normally think of other aspects other than the PBM side because people don't know about it. Like CVS Health, we like to think of Aetna and this and the retail stores. United Healthcare, we like to think of the plans and OptumRx or Optum Insights. But the reason those things are those companies are so big is their PBM business. And at some point, you said you know what? I'm going to drop everything and I'm going to be a modern PBM. What was that day, that month, that year like that, that said, this is worth my time. And I'm sure there's some probably blurry lines between entrepreneurship and flat out craziness involved in there as well. Yeah. I remember like it was yesterday and I want to be clear. I never wanted to be a PBM. It was until something happened, which was a culmination of frustration, but also believing you could compete and provide an alternative to the market. And really, it was the end of the mega mergers. I bring this up mm-hmm. because it was watching CVS merge with Aetna, Cigna with Express Scripts, and Express Scripts had prior to that purchased Medco, mm-hmm. and also Optum buying Catamaran, bringing it into the United you know, side of the house. And so... Yeah. It was the end of the mega mergers. And and why was this so important is that it finally signaled to me two things that it was going to be almost impossible for the vertically integrated carriers to buy anything else. You know, think about it. What's left? Anthem. I think the FTC would have a hard time with that. I think in addition to that, Humana equal issues there. People have tried it and the FTC has said no. And I also think Blue's plans, which are nonprofit. And again, they like their independence. And so Mm -hmm. it's really the end of the mega mergers in 2017. And so what is that signaling as a broader industry is that there's no more growth left in the model? Because if you think about it, if they, the big three, as I affectionately call them and other people in the industry, if they control 75 to 80% of the market, it's trench warfare. Like they might take 1% from one of their competitors and they take 1% back and they go back and forth year over year, but no one's having 20% year over year growth. Those days are over. And you know, what's interesting is that's what the PBM industry was known for. And I always point this out. I think there are wonderful people in all of these organizations that I mentioned that are competitors. They're stuck with an antiquated model that unfortunately puts them at odds with the very people they should service, the patient Mm -hmm. and the plan. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point because when you get that scale and knowing a variety of people in those organizations, and I'm sure you do as well, the financial incentive of the business, it's stock price. People own those stock prices for EBITDA. It's profitability. It's predictability. So when you get into that corner, as you mentioned, to pop out and to invest capital or to put that profitability at risk to re-engineer, you're just not incentivized to do it. And it's kind of like this interesting faceless set of handcuffs that they're locked into which to your point is unfortunate because we've got a labor dense 
system light solution in the age of digital. Exactly right. And their disadvantage was our advantage that we could do it the right way. We could create an ethical system that doesn't have conflicts of interest. Under this old model, you make more money the more expensive the drug is. So what do you become addicted to? Creating formularies that focus on more expensive drugs, approving drugs at a faster rate, perhaps when they shouldn't, and not looking at lower cost alternatives or managing the plan to better outcomes and service at the lowest price point. Because again, I need to keep hitting those earnings. So how can I slow down the machine? I just have to speed it up and keep going after the bigger dollars. And so we wanted to make sure we never ended up in this conundrum. And so we only wanted to make a flat admin fee. And this was Mm -hmm. so critical but we want to take it a step further that no one else in the industry had done, which is all mm-hmm. of our customers get the same price. Like there's this, what I call an encumbrance of price that's artificial yeah. in the pharmacy yeah. benefit industry. Like big company gets better price, small company gets worse price, et cetera. But the reality is, is there's one price. Mm-hmm. Why isn't it the best price every time? And so we did something no one was willing to do, which is everyone gets the same price. We don't manipulate or set price. We get our price from CMS, the federal government. We use what's called NADAC, National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. And why is this so important is one, it's a much better benchmark price. It's deflationary in nature. It shows real acquisition cost. But in addition, we can't encumber price. We have seeded this because I believe this is my background in finance that I believe in economics is that efficient markets rely upon the buyer and seller freely communicating on price. And if this takes place, price settles itself naturally. That's great. That's a, that's a really great way of describing it. And I think I want to build off that first point because that's always been something I need to highlight for a lot of people outside of healthcare. And I'm pro-capitalism. I'm about as American as you get. And where the breakdown is, and I love the way that you described it, is clear communication between a buyer and seller because there's too many transactions that happen in healthcare where you don't know the price of something until maybe afterwards, or you don't have a choice in not participating in the transaction. So you find yourself, at least on the patient side, I have to get treated for cancer. And then I'm not told what it costs until after, say, that treatment or things like that, to where everything that we learned in econ goes out the window because there's a different game being played. And to your point, we're getting, I'll use the term slop in the system because we flirted with it earlier is you look at PBMs, you look at the amount of money that they're tying up and you want to go to this Hollywood movie of some wealthy executive lighting a cigar with $100 bills, but they're not like raking in the money either. It's kind of just getting lost in this murky, non-capitalistic model that's meant to be solved through capitalism, but without the price transparency and the price communication, you can't really get to that capitalistic utopia that we tend to see in other categories, which takes me to the cap. Like, and one of you got any comments on that to build on? Great. But I also want to kind of hear like, how, how are your conversations, particularly as this bumps up against legislation in DC, because I work in this industry and I barely understand it. And I don't know how most of the politicians are making decisions on all this stuff. First, I want to applaud, I think, broadly, all legislators from the executive branch, you know, through Congress are looking at this. They're examined. The FTC is looking at kind of what's going on in this Department of Labor has made adjustments on disclosures to help. So 
I want to say that there's alignment and that is a fantastic sign. I mean, because I've been at this for 22 years and I haven't seen as much interest and that's amazing. So let's focus on the good. You know, people are looking, but to your point, it's so complex. Like I had someone the other day ask me to kind of look at something as a way to kind of rein in BVMs. And I'm like, I can drive a truck through this. And they're like, can you help us? And I'm like, well, I can, but I don't know if you're willing to kind of enforce this type of rule set, but I'm happy to help you. But I think I completely agree is because it is so opaque it because it is so complex, oftentimes it's very difficult to get your arms around it, especially from someone who's a subject matter expert who understands how to outflank you almost instantaneously. And so I think let's, again, reflect upon the positive things, which is, hey, like we are looking, we are developing legislation, we are developing rules in which will bring more oversight and enforcement in these areas. It won't be perfect. You know, as much as I want revolutionary change, it is incremental and that's fine. I think one of the things that I point back to is that the people that defend the status quo are the people that are trapped in the catch-22. And and I talk about this all the time because one of the connotations of a catch-22 is that the person is basically creating arbitrary rules to justify or conceal their abuse of power. And, you know, they'll say things like, we're the company that cares and we help. Mm -hmm. But if you really just get down to how the system operates, it is very unethical and unfair. I mean, you know, if you think about it, we have a system of drug pricing in America where you could walk in, have the same carrier PBM. I have the same prescription. I'm standing in the same pharmacy and we have two different prices. Mm -hmm. Why? And, And I say, and people are like, well, it's very complex. I go, no, it's not. Go into that pharmacy and reach for a bottle of Advil or Tylenol or eye drops. You know what just happened? Didn't matter if you're insured or uninsured. You work for the biggest employer or the small. It's the same price, folks. Right. So it's manufactured in the same type of facility. It's the same drug enforcement. But the only difference is it's over the counter. <laughs> well, it, it's pretty much the design of plans. It's not like you're they're ever reducing price. They're just moving it around. Oh, you don't want to pay a high deductible? We'll increase your monthly premiums. Or they just kind of move things around. And when you pick an insurance plan, those of us that, that understand enough of them, you're kind of picking your gambling stance. Well, it's worse, Paul, because think of it this way. If you've ever spoken to someone who underwrites medical risk, yeah. They'll tell you in two seconds, all the money's coming from pharmacy. Right. There's no money left in medical. Yeah. And so all of the profitability, all of the revenue is tied up in pharmacy. So they must control it. They must maintain the same rule set because to fundamentally change a fractional portion of this revenue would mean they wouldn't hit earnings. Now, right. I do believe there's a path forward for the industry and it's going to be modernization, becoming yeah. efficient, accepting an ethical rule set of drug pricing to stop artificially encumbering drug price, to stop Mm -hmm. manipulating drug price. Because I always want to make this clear is drug prices do not change every hour of every day in every pharmacy for every drug in the United States. That's that's a complete lie. Drug pricing in the United States is incredibly stable. Brand drugs, you could set a clock to twice a year, January and July typically, and generics deflate on a monthly, quarterly basis, depending on your purchasing cycle. Doesn't matter, they're deflating. So why the mystery? 
And and again, it's because we've allowed a system at Mm -hmm. the sole discretion of a faceless administrator at the last hop of the supply chain to artificially encumber and manipulate price. So our company said enough's enough. Capital Rx is that world is over. And I charge every single payer and plan sponsor to take a real hard look at their plan and think about what side of history they want to be on. Yeah. Well, the, and, the, and the other sad part is, is you have physicians that probably would like to help their patients in some of these decisions, but they don't know what the reimbursement is for that patient. And then even when you go to the pharmacy, most of our, the pharmacy I go to, I've got a single pharmacist working a 12 hour shift overseeing everything and doesn't have the time to help me navigate costs because I believe the, the physicians and pharmacists that I know, if they had the time and the insight, they could direct patients to more affordable equally effective drug choices. And the people that we rely on to help us on other aspects of the care have their hands tied as well. So it's just this interesting snowball of disappointment. Oh, I, I guess. more, Paul. <laughs> and I think part of it is unlocking the power of the pharmacist again. They can yeah. do so much more than count in ones, twos, and fives to fill a mm-hmm. prescription. And yeah. I say that as a son of a pharmacist. And, yeah. and, and what I want everyone to understand is if we could stop fighting over price and obfuscating price and encumbering and manipulating price and just let buyers and sellers freely communicate on price, that pharmacist suddenly is starting to get freed up with time and resource to focus on adherence, patient engagement, alternatives. I point this out with something as simple as you go to a store and you buy a box of popsicles and one week it's $5 and you go back to get the popsicles and next week it's 50 bucks. You'd yeah. be like, the store is horrible. I don't, I don't want to come here. But yeah. it's not the store's fault in the U.S. healthcare system. Right. It's the PBM and carrier that's making popsicles $50 magically. And this is what the problem is. Nobody understands price because the existing incumbents don't want you to understand price. Because once right. you understand the real price of something you're never going to pay a false price or a price that's encumbered. And so this is their model they've lived by and defended for so long. And we now are in an era where you have choice, you have Mm -hmm. options. And this gives us the freedom as much as the pharmacist to help the patient. We don't focus, you know, 50% of a traditional PBM's resources are to keep the good times going, managing backlists and clawbacks and rebates. Mm -hmm. If you're just passing 100% through and letting the market speak for itself, you can focus all your time and energy on better efficiency to create a better Mm -hmm. customer experience, better clinical oversight, better outcomes. More importantly, do more for less, which is Mm -hmm. effectively we're trying to get to better outcomes, lower costs for the plan, but better patient outcomes. And this is what everyone's been missing. To be honest, we've been arguing about spreadsheets that have no bearing on performance. I I mean- It is so frustrating, but it's that anger that I wake up with every day that makes me want to continue the fight and change. And we're seeing that change. You know, yeah. you know, we went from an idea to having, you know, 1.6 million members rely upon us for services. And that number will continue yeah. to grow because if you have an opportunity to speak logically and honestly mm-hmm. and do something in a way where it's absolute, nothing is hidden. suddenly people trust you and you can have a much better product and experience. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. 
as we kind of round out the conversation, let's look ahead three to five years. What's realistic for us to get excited about? And what do we need to be more pragmatic about in terms of the progress we're going to make here? Well, I think for us, one of the things that we always want to focus on is the customer. You have to be a customer first organization. And, and that includes both looking over the horizon and who you're servicing today. So you always yeah. want to execute on the products and services that you have and deliver the highest quality service. At the same time, you want to continue to look beyond the horizon and think about how are the ways that I can create an improvement on mm -hmm. our primary goal, which is to service the patient in the plan, as well as are there other areas because of what we do, we should be involved with to help improve healthcare overall. I mean, a lot of what happens in healthcare, I often say, is the promise of any improvement on healthcare can't happen because of the infrastructure is so fragile, antiquated, mm -hmm. disparate. Things don't communicate with each other. People don't have visibility to it. I mean, you brought it up earlier. A physician wants to be engaged, but doesn't know the simplest answers sometimes. Like, are they on formula? Are they not? What are the options? Which pharmacies and network, which isn't. And a lot yep. of times they're playing a guessing game, but they would like to be more, if they could get it right the first time, I think most physicians and nurse practitioners would say, hey, why not? I yeah. would love that work. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is what we think about. One is, again, I think the industry requires an independent claim processor. It's something yeah. we haven't had in a very long time. And it's where we're focused. You know, we are a modern technology stack that now can process both commercial and government claims, Medicare, Medicaid, mm -hmm. et cetera. And this is important because you need independence. You need another alternative. So this is part of our go forward strategy. In addition, I think it's looking at that infrastructure. I often say Capital RX, we're a wonderful PBM and we're an amazing service organization. Mm -hmm. But we're also some of the best plumbers in healthcare. Mm -hmm. We do yep. the things people don't want to deal with. And to keep with my plumber kind of analogy, we deal with the crap, you know, yep. which is things like, hey, there are 250 different eligibility file formats between TPAs yep. and carriers and third-party entities. Who manages that? Accumulator feeds, clinical oversight, formulary management, printing cards, reporting, all of these tasks you have to do. But if you have to do them on a modern tech stack that is both scalable, secure, but also can easily communicate, not just internally with the systems, but third parties, you're not encumbering. One of the things that annoys me about this industry is, again, your end customer is the payer. It's right. their data. It's their members. It's their service. But there are entities in the healthcare system will be like, I'm not sharing the data. Yeah. I'm not giving it. It's proprietary. And I'm like, when did a bill become yeah. proprietary, especially if they're paying for it? Yeah. You know, and, you know because and, of HIPAA, we can't do that. Like, do you even know the laws? Well, <laughs> are you just we're saying not words? talking PII. <laughs> we're not talking, you know, patient identifiable information. Yeah. You know, we're talking about just a bill or data or the yeah. claim itself. So someone could interact, provide an additional service and have a complementary arrangement for this payer. Yeah. The other piece that comes up a lot when we talk transformation is this aspect of time and cost of time, opportunity of time. And there is something that you mentioned with data is I'm always fascinated when there's something involves a data exchange, the time it takes just to get paperwork done. And I've heard in one of my clients where it took two months to execute an NDA. 
a two page legal document that just says, we're not going to do something outside this agreement took two months. Like for, for us and my, my day job, NDAs done, are done in less than 24 hours. Yep. And I, it's just this time aspect of like, how does reading two pages of a legal document take two months to approve? And it just starves out this innovation muscle. It's crazy. Well, what's interesting, Paul, is we've hired people from every company out there in healthcare at this point. And oftentimes some executives will talk about standard operating procedures mm -hmm. defensively. And one of them is delaying tactics. Oh, you want an NDA? Mm, it's going to have to go through the attorneys. We'll have to get a ticket turnaround. Yeah. Oh, we're on our fifth round of changes to the NDA. You know, and so what did I just do is I just burned up time. Yeah. And then the next one, oh, I have a data request. Oh, okay. We're going to see how long that takes. And what I'm doing is I'm getting to the point of mm -hmm. no return, which is yeah. an employer group's got to go live on one, one or seven, one. And they're like, Hey, I'm up against a wall. We'll have yeah. to pick this up in three years. Which is why I think particularly on the payer side or some of these bigger payers that have a PBM attached is I'm always amazed at why they're trying to do so much innovation in-house on their own. And their in-house teams are upset the process. Like I can get something out to market. It might not be as good as that acquisition, but it's going to take me three years to pull off that acquisition and integrate it. Whereas I'll try to do it in-house and it just, and you look at it and it just hurts you because you're seeing a fleet of like probably 12 startups they could buy or something else they could do. But this data exchange, legal interaction just suffocates that, that ability. So Anyway, I want to I want to put a bit on that because we keep talking for a while. I want to close with uh, just my favorite question: As if you think about what you've gone through in the last five, six, seven years with Capital RX, you talked about a little bit of who you are and where you came from. What would you go back and and tell yourself five or six years ago that you've learned since then that would be good advice for you? I think the key phrase is tell yourself. So I wouldn't yeah. change anything because one, I just believe in infinite outcomes. And even mm -hmm. if I did the opposite, it doesn't necessarily mean it'll be a better outcome for the organization. So I don't think I would change anything. And I often say going back to the beginning were miserable times. There's nothing worse than mm -hmm. trying to sell a product and people are like, how long you've been in business for? And you're like, yep. including this week. And they're yeah. like, well, that's not confidence building, <laughs> you know, or how many customers do you have? And I'm like, mm -hmm. including you. And they'd be like, oh my dear Lord, what are you asking of me? And I'm like, to go through an invisible archway across an invisible bridge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but what would I tell myself is I would say your, your instinct is right. I would say follow through on what you believe is the appropriate path and never compromise. That's great advice. That's excellent. Well, AJ, thank you so much for taking some time, sharing a little bit about your story and give us a nice, uh, you know, walk through the world of PBMs and why we should all be really excited about what Capital RX is doing in terms of bringing fair, visible pr drug pricing to uh, the United States and who knows beyond from there, but really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Thanks for listening to Profits Healthcare Transformers podcast. This podcast is produced by Jared Johnson and his wonderful team at Shift Forward Health. And a big thank you to our hosts, Priya Anasia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgie. If you liked today's episode, you can find more great content like this at profit.com slash thinking. I'm Anna Kuno, the senior editor of this podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>